0: This week on According to Sources, part one of the Merger Masters podcast series inspired by Kate Welling's recent book. This week, it's Karen Feinerman of Metropolitan Capital. We sat down and discussed why she's avoiding the merger arb world these days. She talks the future of women in finance in general. And she recounts her experience in United Airlines in 1989, perhaps the most significant deal collapse in recent history. I'm Mike Samuels, founder, and portfolio manager of Broomstreet Capital. And this is according to sources for the week of November 25th, 2018. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. It's breaking news to share with you this morning, M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. This is such a game changer. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast devoted to the subject of mergers and acquisitions, deals and activism, and the sources that both cover and surround them. Again, I'm Mike Samuels of Broom Street Capital. Just a quick reminder before we begin the interview, while this is a weekly podcast, I do tweet my ideas and thoughts sometimes in real time. The handle is at accord to sources, A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O sources. My email is michael at According to Sources Podcast if you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast. And now on to my interview with Karen Feinerman. So when I first reached out to you and we were talking about the book Merger Masters and I wanted to get you in and talk about your chapter in it, uh, you said you were interested but that you don't really play in the merger ARP space anymore. True. And so I wanted to know why. Let's just start with, why not?
1: Why not? Uh, well, when I first started in the business, the merger arbitrage space was very, very different. And there were a lot of hostile deals, which I always found to be the most interesting and the most exciting and um, the most intellectually challenging. And that was really fun. And then the business sort of started to change. One thing that was very dramatic was a lot more capital came into the business. So spreads that used to be very big started to get much narrower. You could make calls to executives once a deal was announced, and they would pick up the phone because there weren't that many ARBs at the time when I first started. Right. And so you had a time advantage just by being the first one to call them. So they didn't have this sort of, um, you know... Uh, release of all the information at the same time. Well, they didn't have conference just a, calls. Just a pause mm-hmm.
0: there. So, well, that's what I was going to ask. When you're saying you would call the executive and get an edge that way, what sort yep. of things would would they tell you?
1: So, uh, sometimes they wouldn't tell you anything. Um, sometimes they would say you would ask them what are the conditions to the merger in the in the merger agreement. That's an important question, right? right? Yes. So uh, this is in a sort
0: of a pre-deal conference call world,
1: right? There wasn't a conference call to, and that they wouldn't speak to anyone prior right. to that conference call, and they would release all the information at the same time. So there was no time advantage after they started doing sure. that. But when I first started in the business, there was this time advantage, and literally you would have a, a, a um, courier that would send over tender offer documents or merger agreements, and the quicker your courier got to you, the quicker you were able to read it, which is in- insane now, right? right. In what years are we talking? So that's like the late 80s. Okay. Um, so the idea now that you would actually wait for, someone to, for it to be printed and, and, and couriered up to you is ridiculous now. But So that created a real-time advantage if you were able to get stuff quicker. Right. And then also, we used a lot of options, and that was an interesting way to play deals. I don't know if you, you're probably too young to even remember front-end and back-end deals, where they would have, we'll propose, let's say, $108 cash for 51% of the company, and 49% will be these notes, high-yield notes, Right. And well, you don't see, know what those would trade. You see it. some of
0: that. I mean, some, like SoftBank bought 80% of Sprint, and that was right. a deal sort of similar to that.
1: And you see cash and stock deals. That still happens a lot. But um, these were very front-end loaded. So they wanted to give you a higher front-end, so you had to tender. Right. Because if you're left with just the back-end, if you forget to tender, you're going to get much less value. Right. So that was sort of a manipulative um uh, tool that they would use all the time. So that, that also played really well with options because you would have puts that became back end puts. Mm-hmm. And the back end was worth much less, the puts were worth much more. So if you were comfortable with options, there was a lot of opportunity to make pretty good returns. That has changed dramatically. And also, I found over time the stress of waking up to a broken deal. Yeah. It's really tiring.
0: Are you sleeping better?
1: Much better. Much better. Although they, I, they didn't have Ambien at the time. Maybe it would have been different. I don't know. But it, it's, it's that kind of stress. And it can be for the most random reason. You know, if we look at Broadcom Cepheus, Right. Right? That was really out of left field. You know, that wasn't when, you, when, the, when it started going, the deal sort of started heating up.
0: Are you talking about Broadcom Qualcomm or Broadcom yeah. CA?
1: Uh, Broadcom Qualcomm. Right. Right. Uh, you know, CFIUS was sort of one of those, oh, just check the box, you don't really ever worry about
0: sure.
1: it. Now, you have to worry That's about item it.
0: item number one.
1: Right. And, you know, sometimes they'll have a market out, not for huge deals, but, uh, or you'll get, literally, there's a Joel Greenblatt. Do you know who Joel Greenblatt yeah. is? He tells story of SeaWorld literally their main attraction fell into a sinkhole before their deal was going to close. Right. So you can't be prepared for their main, you know, attraction falling into a sinkhole, but those kind of things happen. And so in a takeover deal you have the premium of a deal collapsing, right? So that comes all out and then you have, oh, now they have no pr- premier attraction. So the downside is enormous.
0: Right. And we haven't had one of those deals that sort of got to the one-yard line and then collapsed in a long time.
1: In a long time, that's But true. in the book— Well, Broadcom got slowly—it it was it was slow, and it wasn't a giant collapse, but it was really this out-of-left-field event. The when
0: Trump blocked the deal? yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You talk about mm-hmm. hostile deals, and it is great theater. But then you have situations. I mean, that was a hostile deal. They did right. not want to be bought. Right. And I'm thinking of other deals like uh, Tevin Myland uh, or um, Sanofi Medivation. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes it's it's hit or miss with these, but they do mm-hmm. make for amazing theater, and they yes. do get your brain thinking about all the different scenarios that can happen.
1: They do. I don't know if they make for good returns, right? But they are right. really interesting as a voyeur. Um, so. That, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've lost somewhat my stomach for waking up with a big broken deal.
0: Right. So what so. did you pivot to then instead of, instead of playing in this space?
1: So it really became more, um, where is there value? Where is there something that's trading based on its intrinsic value, not on what does the deal look like?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: really, when it's the deal, it's so much more about the art of the deal to use a common phrase now, right? The art of the deal. What is the deal structured? What else can go wrong? Could there be another bidder? Um, things like that. Now it's, I find it more interesting to just focus on what is the value of a company.
0: But don't you get frustrated because I like the fact that regardless of market conditions, for the most part, if I connect the dots in a deal, right of all the different circumstances, everything should play out pretty much the way I think it's going to. But as a value person, you might get everything in the stock exactly right, but the market conditions can change, and you could get the outcome wrong.
1: Yes, that is frustrating. That can happen. Uh, But I feel like if you get it right, the upside could be so much greater than the deal closes. Because it seems to me, you would have much more clear opinion of this than I, that the amount of capital now really narrows that spread so that the spreads aren't um, I don't know I guess worth uh, it? aren't worth it, yeah, some of them aren't worth it. I mean it used to be also one of the unforeseen things that we would run into was a state legislature that would say, you know what we don't want our company getting taken over. we're putting in a new statute that you know you uh, see that with
0: utilities sometimes
1: right we haven't seen uh, like a you know Pennsylvania, I think for uh, Wisconsin put in some pretty draconian anti-shareholder measures right We have seen that in a long long time but
0: um, one of the chapters yeah. in the book i forget who says it but he really just you know if it's in delaware he's in right if it's not in delaware <laughs> he's out.
1: yes i learned that lesson the hard way right delaware is where you want to be exactly new york's not terrible either but delaware is where to be
0: so so, so but on. in value i mean mm-hmm. there's there's so many stocks out there right right and uh you're like sifting through a needle and looking for the needle in the haystack. So for you, how does the needle come out of yeah, the haystack and right. land in your portfolio?
1: So that's evolved over time. And uh, one of the things that I've sort of gravitated to is actually gradu- gra- uh, gravitated away from, or repelled, I guess, is really small cap companies because they trade inefficiently, which in itself is yeah. not terrible. But... Uh, A small cap company doesn't have the wherewithal to survive unforeseen things Mm -hmm. that happen. And they happen all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just, you know, that's the world. You You can't foresee everything. So that happens. So I like owning bigger companies that have some cushion. So it doesn't have to be great balance sheets, but it has to be something. They have to have a market position that's good. They have to have operating margins that are decent they have to have something that gives them a little bit of cushion for bad times and I'm not I'm very often you know early is wrong I guess it's just a matter of time very often early but uh, I'm okay waiting for things to things change right? right and sentiment changes we look at right now sentiment in technology couldn't be worse And that's frustrating, because I own many technology stocks. um, And it's really, every day, they're just worth less. Yet, the stocks are worth less. Yet, I think the businesses are worth exactly the same as they were
0: yesterday. Is it hard to be, I mean, you're on Fast Money three times a week, you said roughly. And I mean, that's a really show devoted to quick money, trading, in and out. And what you're talking about is the exact opposite.
1: Yes. That's my voice on the show, right? <laughs> so they're all, you know, focused on what are they going to earn? Do, where, do you want to be in it in front of earnings? Um, that's really not my game at all. I don't understand it, to be honest. I mean, I say that all the time. I don't. One thing I've learned being on the show is we have a lot of guys who do charts, mm-hmm. and I really dismiss the value of charts. So do right? I. So I thought this doesn't make any sense to me. You can draw any lines you want and make a head and shoulder or cup and saucer or whatever you want to call it, formation. doesn't make sense to me. But then I've realized over time, if enough people believe in the value of charts, then there's right. value to the charts. If everybody thinks, oh, the chart's showing you there's a floor at 60, so I can buy it. It's okay to buy at 60. Then there's a floor at 60 if enough people believe it. doesn't matter if I believe it. and think it's kind of... I don't know voodoo. I had a first <laughs>
0: boss, and he w- would basically say um, something to the degree of the reason why charts are so popular is because it's the easiest thing to learn.
1: Okay, and, that sounds like a good answer. And <laughs> I
0: sort of buy that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But as you said, if enough people subscribe to it, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it will go there.
1: Right. So I can't dismiss that entirely.
0: I kind of just feel mm-hmm. like a chart is a good. Uh, barometer for whatever the expectations were into an event, right? So if a stock ramps up 30% into earnings and then they beat, well, you know, it was probably expected. Uh That's how I'll use a chart.
1: Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. So you want to be out of those, you know, you want to buy the rumor, sell the
0: news. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of.
1: Okay. That makes sense.
0: So, you know, talking about uh, deals, going back to deals for a second, and we're talking about deals that did get to the one yard line and then fell apart. And you talked at length about um, the UAL mm. deal in the late '80s, and maybe you could just tell your experience with that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yes. Thank. Thank you for bringing up Sorry. the worst <laughs> chapter in my life, uh, at least as it goes to investing. Yeah. So United Airlines was. Um, in a deal, it was an LBO. The idea now of an LBO for an airline, which is so capital intensive to lever up an airline uh, to buy it really doesn't make a lot of sense. But at the time people thought it was a great idea. So we were we had positioned in United Airlines and um, I thought it would be interesting to have on a 280 260 one by two put spread. If that's too wonky, just I'll just say we bought this put spread. To protect us in case the
0: deal dragged on. And by the way, only someone in this industry would remember the strike prices from 30 years ago. <laughs> it's
1: seared into my, it's practically right. branded into my brain. It was such a bad trade. So the deal was supposed to be 300 So if it closed, then that put spread, which we bought for two and five-eighths, because things traded in eighths at the time, would go to zero. But our stock would have gone to 300 and that would have been fine. This is really a hedge in case the deal was delayed. And it protected us all the way down to about 242. Mhm. Stock is around 280. So credit markets get bad and the deal ends up collapsing and the stock goes well below 240 and it goes well below where it was trading prior to there being any deal because the whole economy was starting to slow and the airline business wasn't great and so the stock ended up trading down to about 180 or so, and so this trade that we had paid two and five eighths to put on, uh, we actually had to pay 80 to get out of. Yeah. So a risk reward of uh, you know if put it on at two and five eighths. The best case scenario it was worth 20, um, but 80 to get out of. That is a really, really, really bad trade, hopefully one that you will only make once in your career. And it was because I really didn't appreciate or give any expected value to the scenario of, oh, what if the deal breaks? Right. Which is so dumb because deals can break, particularly LBOs. I mean, this wasn't Berkshire as a buyer or IBM as a buyer. You know, those are names you think of those. Okay, those are A-quality buyers. They will close come hell or high water. This was not that. So it was an unbelievably painful lesson about asymmetric risk and knowing when you're in it and how to get out of it and obviously to never put it on is the lesson of asymmetric risk. You want to be on the other side of that kind of trade.
0: So one of the, I told you how I, I, you have an excellent Wikipedia page with oh. many with many links to the interviews you've done. In one of the interviews, they asked you, what are your three top career advice tips? And so the first thing that you said was, uh, this is a quote, it said, know that you will fail at some point, but learn from it. The lessons from that failure will be extremely valuable. So what did you learn from that?
1: That you've really got to understand and think about all the different scenarios. And you got to know that they can happen. Well, of course you have to move forward, right? You'd never make an investment if you could just find everything that could go wrong and use that as an excuse to never buy anything. Right. And you're guaranteed to never make money. But um, to really think through what's going to happen in different scenarios and how much will you lose and how much can you stand losing and how much are you really, ris- when you put the trade on, how much you really have at risk. So if you don't understand what you have at r- at risk, how can you make an educated guess about the risk-reward calculation?
0: Right. You also said mm-hmm. something in the book about once the event is over, you're out. Like, yeah. let's, let's not bend this and now say it's a value play or something right. like that. Let's just get out.
1: Let's just get out, right. We were in it for a deal. There's no deal. Let's just sell. And I don't have any rule about, oh, you can never get back in. But right. I think you get some objectivity when you don't own the stock. Mm-hmm that you don't have when you do own it and are sort of shrouding your investment thesis in hope or Mm -hmm. ego or something, right? The first loss is the best loss. I don't know if you've heard that. That's, you know, that deal breaks, that first loss. Just get out. You can reassess. Um, That's an important lesson also. Do you remember,
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, when I have a big loss, uh, something like that, it can be psychologically damaging yeah remember like the days after that or what you did that night
1: devastating I mean it was with me all the time yeah for months and months and months you know so very fortunately um, the next year ended up being a very good year but um, it's really stuck with me primarily because it was so stupid Right. I mean, sure. I had a loss once.
0: This was years ago, and it prompted me to just finally go reach out and start, you know, speaking to a, a counselor, a therapist, coach, whatever you want to call it, uh-huh. just to have someone to sort of vent to. Right. You know, that was unbiased, and you know, now you see that stuff on billions, and I think <laughs> right. it's become popular. But it's important to yes. have that because if I internalize that, then it just gets worse and bigger in my head.
1: Right. And then it doesn't help you make better decisions no. at all. In fact. You make worse decisions when you have this, you know, you feel like, oh, I got to make it back. You don't need to make it back where you lost it. Right. right? Or, and you or you don't to need to make, make it, it back it, all in one day. Exactly. Either. And in any particular time, you hope to as quickly as you can, but that doesn't always happen. Yeah. So a lot of times uh, just minimizing your loss is the best thing you can do because you minimize the loss. Very often it would have gotten worse and you can sort of reset and regroup and yeah. start over
0: um the second career advice tip that you gave from mm-hmm. this interview you said be flexible expect to change paths or industries at least once has that happened yeah. to you
1: it has a couple of times i first started on the trading side of the business and then i realized i really wanted to be on the research side uh, i wanted to learn companies better and um it seemed i don't for, intellectually more challenging To me at the time so i did shift and go from the trading side to the research side and then i shifted from risk arv into a much broader kind of investment portfolio and then i shifted to tv which Mm -hmm. was a complete left turn out of nowhere so how did that come mm, to be that was completely random i was in there was an article women on wall street And I was one of the women in it. And the producers of Mad Money were creating a show to go with Mad Money, which was Fast Money. Mm -hmm. So they had launched this show as a once a week kind of thing. And they had a guy named Dylan Radigan was the host. I remember. And then they had four traders. So they had Dylan and four traders. And it was a desk of five guys who happened to be big guys. So it was five big white guys. Right. And then I think that they were sort of, all right, we got to rethink this a little bit. Uh, I think they felt like, all right, if we can find a woman, that's great. Let's try to do that. And that's how I started. And then they... I did a screen test, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. And they said, all right, that was pretty good. Maybe you'll fill in if one of the guys is sick or something. And then I think they realized, you know what? We need, we need to shake this up a little bit. Mm. And um, so.
0: Well, it's good to have a thing. different voice on there, not just a, mm. uh, a feminine voice. But right. I mean, the idea of it's not just like quick money trading yes. out. I almost think mm. it's dangerous sometimes. Like sometimes my dad will call me. You know, my dad mm-hmm. likes to trade stocks. But he's not in front of his computer all day. It's a hobby mm. for him. Right. And, you know, he'll hear a Nigerian brother say, I like this. And he'll do it,
1: uh-huh. you
0: know, and then he doesn't hear the next time right. when he goes, I'm out of it. He, right. You know, he, he's not listening every day. So it's a little yeah. dangerous sometimes, I think. Right.
1: And he probably thinks, oh, Pete will let me know. Right. Well, it's not really Pete's job to let you know if you're not going to focus every day, which of course he wouldn't. Right. So it is, it is, I mean, I'm not against making quick money right away. Um, I just don't know how to do it. And I, that's Okay. I do think there's a place for another voice, uh, a different kind of focus. Mm.
0: So the third piece of advice you gave was, sometimes you have to go backwards before you go forwards. The road is never straight, and it isn't always in the same direction.
1: Right. Um, I'm, for sure, going backwards meant regrouping after big losses. So we had a deal to sell half our fund in 1998 and it fell apart, and contemporaneously, we had terrible performance in our portfolio in the month and the months after was this from that. from the
0: Russian crisis?
1: Yes. So this was 1998, the Russia crisis, and so we had, at the time, a smaller cap for- portfolio because big cap was very, very expensive, and it really was a terrible position to be in. We had sort of more of a big cap hedge and a small cap portfolio. That was a terrible position to be in. And so we had huge losses in 1998 after having put up six or seven years of very good numbers. And that was a disaster for us. And so we had to shrink back. You know, we were probably set back, I don't know, four or five years. And that was a very painful thing to do, to just focus on, all right, we got to... Our big growth plans and plans of selling half the business, all that is out the window. Mm -hmm. Let's just focus on what can we do this month? How can we regroup this month? Or what should we be putting on our portfolio right now? And trying to block out all of that other noise and just sort of starting over.
0: Do you ever just... Wipe your slate clean and be like, let's start sell, from scratch. Literally, sell everything. Yeah,
1: no, because I'm very tax focused. Um, right. So if you do have any gains, I mean, if we're tax aware, um, but that's not a bad idea to do that. I think. I mean, it if probably you run, would well. <laughs> can't do that. But I mean, right. If you run yeah. a
0: fund that's in a certain size, you can't.
1: Certainly, if you're in a, almost any size, if you're in a big cap portfolio, you can. Right. right. Um, it's not a bad idea. Maybe we should have done that. I don't know.
0: (laughs) What motivates you at this stage in your life to keep going into work every day?
1: Right. Well, the intellectual exercise, definitely. Um, it really stopped being about money a long time ago. The very first bonus I had was $6,000. So I was 21, I guess. I had a Mm -hmm. $6,000 bonus and it was a bad year. It was 1987. So we had clearly lost money. The crash had happened, and we lost money. But they gave me a $6,000 bonus. And I bought a five-CD changer stereo whole thing, whole rig. And that was the greatest thing I ever bought. I got the most pleasure out of that. It was $1,200. You know, so uh, I used you know, a chunk of my bonus on that. And I've never gotten as much pleasure from any other thing that I've bought since then. And so you're not some, an
0: accumulator of things and gadgets and toys? A,
1: a little bit. I do like art. I do like uh, modern art and photography. But um, nothing came close to that that very first thing. And so now it's really, you know, my life isn't changing based on one year's returns. It's right. just, It's just not changing at all. And so... It's really the intellectual challenge. It does feel good to not have to worry about money. Right? Sure. So when I was just getting out of school, right, I had a net worth of zero and um, that, you know, if you lose your job. That's very bad. Mm-hmm. So being in a different position where you don't really need to focus or worry about money is good. Yeah. That's...
0: I agree with you. I also think in terms of the stuff, like accumulating the stuff, I think especially in my 20s, I think like, oh, I really want to get this. And once I get this, fill in the blank, car, right. boat, whatever, life will be great. And you get this, life will be great. And then you end up getting those things and like, like it's yeah. whatever. Right. It's like, now what? Uh, yes. and, and it's hard to, it's. I got to get out of that, oh, what's the next thing? You know, Because that mm-hmm. next thing is not going to be like the all-ending thing to make me happy.
1: Right. That is definitely true. I remember growing up, I really wanted to make money. I wanted to be financially independent. And I thought, I'm going to go to Wall Street, I'm going to make a lot of money, and I'm going to buy a Ferrari. Mm. And I really wanted that. And, you know, time came where I could have bought a Ferrari, but I live in New York City, and I why have a car, and it didn't make any sense, and... I didn't get a car till years later, and it ended up being a minivan. So that was my first New York car, as a, you know, uh, as a grown-up person that I bought was a minivan, which is a very different spot than I thought I would be at thinking about. Oh, I'm going to get a Ferrari.
0: It's like these. It's it's one of those things that like symbol, symbolizes. Oh, I've made it. Right? Exactly, in right. my head, but it's like you yeah. said it's like it's a fleeting feeling and then it's like okay well yes what, what's next
1: right what's next but feeling like oh i really got this one right that doesn't get old yeah yeah that doesn't get old nor does the pain of feeling like wow i really got this one wrong
0: is there mm-hmm. also um amongst your peers is there a competitive aspect that's kind of nice um
1: probably somewhere in there here's the thing that's sort of interesting My peers, like I went to school with a bunch of guys who've been very successful. I think uh, men view that differently than women. Hmm. The Ferrari part's kind of male. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I think women view it a little bit differently. But you can't, I mean.
0: What about, I mean, in your own family? I mean, you have a really successful family.
1: I do. I don't think of myself as the most successful one in my family by a lot.
0: Is, mean, there, <laughs> is there a competitive nature amongst siblings?
1: A little bit, yeah. I mean, but we're in, you know, my brother's a real estate. Uh, he does commercial mortgage-backed securitization. Very, very successful. Very successful. I don't know if you know who my sister is. I just,
0: she was the producer of Forrest Gump. Right, read so that.
1: that's pretty cool, yeah. right? Um, she, you know, she's won an Oscar. That's really great. Uh, and, you know, that achievement. And she's had so many great movies. Um I really admire her for that. That's not something I think I could have ever done. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I view her as very successful. I think she would have been phenomenally successful had she come to Wall Street. I don't think I would have been successful had I gone into the movie business. What do you mm-hmm. think?
0: If you, if you weren't doing this, what do you think you'd be doing?
1: Uh, well, I guess TV news, maybe. Um, I feel like God. I have no other skills that's that could idea. serve me, right? Like, what would I do out in the woods? I'd be dead in a you know very short <laughs> amount of time. Uh, I don't know. I have no other skills. It's not, I, and I. That's terrible. I don't know. Um,
0: but at the same <laughs> time, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but I have an idea. Is like, I like really, I really like this job. Like on yeah. Sunday night, I'm excited for Monday, and <laughs> so it's okay that I don't know you know how to play any musical instruments or draw or paint or anything because i I have this so i'm Uh, pretty happy about
1: it (laughs) i have those exact same lack of skills i can't draw no instruments no singing nothing i'm fairly athletic yeah but you know at my age that really is not going to go anywhere (laughs) so uh yeah
0: so i i end each interview with five questions all right so here's the first question all right in an interview, you described yourself as being a, one of the few women at this one certain investor pitch. And the quote you said was, I looked around and there was 40 people in the room, 36 were men. I'm always surprised, but I find myself in this situation all the time. 20 years ago on Wall Street, it was the same number. So my question is to you, 20 years from now, mm-hmm. given the climate that's happening, do you think it will be the same 20 years from now?
1: No, I don't. I think it'll be a lot closer to 50-50. Why? I think that the pipeline of women going into business is is growing. Uh, we know I went to Wharton. When I look at the class of Wharton now, it's over half women. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing that cha- is changing. I think another thing that's changing that is really important is that men are starting to want to be more involved with the family. I think. Right. I don't know if you feel that, if you imagine I that I don't. To me. I haven't okay. seen that. You haven't seen no. that. Okay. I feel like that's happening, and that's a crucial part of it, that um, a partner, whoever that may be, needs to be more involved with the family to help women stay in the workforce. Mm. That's part of it. I think that... Um, the number of senior women will grow and that sort of modeling that you'll see more junior women I think will happen. But you still, if you go to, you know, see an industrial company pitch at a conference that there are not that many women there.
0: When I interviewed Kate Welling, she's, her opinion is that it's when women give birth uh, and getting back in that a lot right. of women are in the field, but then don't come back
1: right huge mistake I think huge mistake and because maybe they imagine they'll get back in later it's really hard to do that really hard and I I wonder if employers look at a woman in her late 20s early 30s and wonder oh am I gonna have someone who's gonna get pregnant and leave Right. right Um, I don't know. That wouldn't be the craziest thought, Uh, and I think that's that's a real problem. And I think also there's some jobs that women or whoever wants to have a family and work, let's say it's a woman, uh, are really not... Investment banking, for example. Um, Being a lawyer, being a a junior lawyer um, is really hard. Right. I wonder if, you know,
0: maybe... 20 years ago if a man and woman were interviewing for the same job at the same firm and they were a, roughly the exact same level maybe he would pick the man for the reasons that you just described right and mm-hmm. maybe today it would be the opposite that for to be politically correct to be part of a movement that promotes more diversity that they would go the other that they would go the other way
1: yeah I think that's true I think um, that I I bet that happens certainly way more than it did from for my generation but i think it will happen more
0: right all right question Mm -hmm. two so um one of the women that you hired to work at metropolitan capital was silda wall spitzer who was a managing director in the wake of the scandal around her husband Mm -hmm. and on her bloomberg bio it says metropolitan capital 2008 to unknown that is what it says. Oh, okay. So, uh, a, how did that hire come to be, and how long was she at Metropolitan? Uh,
1: she was there till about 2013, maybe. Okay. Um, so, my husband and Elliot grew up together, and uh, we've been friends with Elliot and Silda so for th- so long, and um, Silda was. Uh, is very smart, very talented. She had been a lawyer at uh, Chase mm-hmm. when it was Chase uh, before it merged with J.P. Morgan, and uh, at Skadden. And um, you know, in 2008, wanted to go back into the workforce. Once his career took off, it really be- and they had three children. It really became too difficult to for have for her to be working as well, given right. the demands of his career. And she's. Very close friend of mine still, and she is uh, very smart and um, great sense of humor. And so I, I was delighted to have her. What was her role <laughs> at Metropolitan? She helped with sort of general strategy and fundraising. And uh, she also had a particular interest in green investing. And we used to um, debate green investing. And I would always, always say, well, why, don't you, why wouldn't you just be long oil? Because if oil goes up, the value of green investments will go up. Right. You don't have to pick the right one. You don't need to get some environmental improvement or tax credits or whatever it is. Just if oil goes up, they're going up. Mm-hmm. So um, that was just an intellectual debate. If you pick the right one, uh, then you could do very well. So you know, we'll look at the solar space, for example. That was an extraordinary home run for a while. Right. You have to, until time, you it have to wasn't time all right. this right. Yeah, so um, I
0: remember I was at the uh, I believe it was Robinhood one of the Robin Hood conferences and on stage was David Einhorn and the CEO of Sun Edison uh-huh. and then there was Andy Hall who was a famous energy trader was on the other and the CEO of Sun Edison predicted that oil which was about a hundred at that point would go to thirty that solar would oh. be so powerful ah, okay and the thing we- was he was right but Sun Edison went bankrupt because <laughs> yes of it. so to your point uh-huh. of energy needs to be high for these companies to thrive.
1: Yes, because their value proposition needs to be high.
0: So uh, question three, you speak uh, fondly on the show of Carl Icahn often and uh, and of activism in general. So um, if people like Carl Icahn or Paul Singer or Nelson Peltz are the sort of old guard of activism, who do you you consider to be the best name in the new guard?
1: Well, I think he bridges both. I think Dan Loeb
0: Mm.
1: um, bridges both. And it's not always... You know, Campbell's, for example, right now is, I guess it's morphed from sale to board seats and a sale still, but maybe there is no sale to be had. I don't know. I'm not sure. And uh, he's and,
0: facing a vote that's basically mathematically impossible. Very,
1: right. Very difficult. Um, so I don't know what the, how that's going to shake out there because, as to, I mean, it's been quasi for sale for... A while now. Right. Anybody wanted to lob a bit in, the door was kind of half open, then wide open. So I don't know how that one's going to work out. But I do think he is sort of bridging both. Carl, I don't know. How old is Carl? 80- 86, I think. Something? Okay. Yeah. He's still out there. He's as active. Well, Singer's probably the most active, but Carl's still pretty active. I mean, you see him in Dell, yep. and we saw him very briefly in Express Scripts, uh, and then he just, you know, turned around. And that was, was a little odd. Headed out. I, yeah, I don't know what that was exactly about, but um, I mean, he seems to just love the game of it. We saw that Xerox situation; that was wild, also a little odd, <laughs> very odd. I've never seen a situation where the board resigns on mass and then comes back
0: mm-hmm. days
1: later that highly unusual um well that's the thing mm-hmm. he,
0: he's a champion of shareholder value and yet lately in a couple mm-hmm. of weird situations this year like with xerox or with signa uh, express uh, scripts right. it seemed disruptive
1: yes uh it, it was i think Um, He's a bit of a character, you know, as anyone who's seen Carl knows, he's quite a character. I think he just loves the the sport of it. And I think he also is deeply offended by managements Mm. that sort of pay themselves an extraordinary amount of money, don't create value, and stand in the way of value creation.
0: Yeah, he seems most comfortable when management fights back.
1: Yeah, I think that's the sport of it
0: for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Last question. Uh, around five years ago, like we said, you started appearing on Fast Money. Um, in that five mm-hmm. years, what ten? Been your- actually. Ten. Wow. Mm-hmm. In those ten years, what's been your favorite memory from the show? And mm-hmm. then, second part of that, is there something about the uh, guests, the hosts, the panelists mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. someone listening would be surprised to know?
1: Uh, I, maybe the most surprising, I'm not sure, is we get along extraordinarily well. We really have fun doing the show. So if you were to hear what goes on during the commercial breaks, it's all of us sort of goofing around, playing different games, um, you know, trying to name that tune. We do a lot of that during the breaks. So we're all very, very close. And that's been a great part of the show. Um... I don't know if that chemistry comes across fully or not I think uh, it does, think it does. Um, so that's sort of one thing um, I've met a tremendous number of CEOs and I love meeting CEOs I love learning about new businesses I love having Carl on um, one funny thing Jamie Dimon who we always joke about I love Jamie Dimon and, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan has been in a big position for a long, long time. He came on um, on my birthday one year. That was, <laughs> as a birthday uh, surprise, that was amusing. Um, I think that... And flattering, mm, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, it's the biggest <laughs> bank in the world. <laughs> right. Know. It's pretty cool. Um, I think 2007 was quite an extraordinary time. I don't know if that's my, I don't know if it's my best memory or not. I'm not it, it was an extraordinary time because we'd have this breaking news while we were doing the show that was gigantic right? all the time. That was, 2007, 2008, 9. that was really, really interesting. Scary, right? But people really tune in to CNBC when, when volatility is very high, when there's a lot of nervousness in the market, where policy is changing all the time. And so it was our job to try to translate what was happening to what does it mean for not just the average investor, but what does it mean for the average American? And when the government was trying to bail out Citibank, they... Um, they wanted to get that message out very clearly. They were not going to let Citibank fail. Here is our structure, mm-hmm. and this is going to be our structure for any bank that's in a perilous situation. And they came to us, and they wanted us to convey that message. That was it's interesting and uh, a little scary as well. When
0: that's happening, I mean, all you yeah. guys run money. Has anyone right. ever made a trade from the set of Fast Money?
1: During this show? Yeah. Yeah, you that can happens. do that. right? Um, they're very, they're, they're real sticklers as they should be about disclosure. Um, I mean, you know, breaking news just could be earnings, you know, so earnings happen. You can trade while you're on the show. I try not. It's a bit distracting. It's embarrassing to not know, to lose the thread of the show and then they come to you (laughs) and you don't know what they're talking about. I try to really minimize that to close to zero if possible, but, um, so that was, that was interesting to me to talk with um, uh, some government officials about them really wanting to get that message out. And it also, now here we are 10 years later. Yeah, do you have a view, an overall so,
0: view of the market now and maybe a favorite stock to take us out on?
1: Well, one thing that's amazing to me is Citibank is now only back to six really it's 65 but it's 10 for one so how underwater must it really have been that we're 11 years later 10 years later of pretty good growth and mm-hmm. great credit quality and all of that and it's still only six bucks a share so it must have been well well below zero right um oh my god favorite stock one well, i can give you one that i've been getting killed on every day okay it's Hit really me. boring and i think it's fantastic which is alphabet it's You know, that's not an exciting trade at all, but the extraordinary power of this business at this price, particularly when they have really one of the great cash hoards the world has ever seen, Mm -hmm. they get no value for it. I would like them to do some sort of... It doesn't need to be a dividend. I understand why they don't want to become a dividend payer, but...
0: You know what's mm-hmm. going to happen if they start doing that? Everyone's going to say, "Oh my God, they're a slow growth dividend player right. now. Sell it."
1: But isn't it trading already? Like people think that? I think it is. I, or I don't think they should be a dividend payer. I think they should do a massive buyback, and I think that would help earnings obviously because the multiple they're trading at is far less than the cash that they earn on that than the interest they earn on that cash hoard. So it would be accretive for sure. I always think if Alphabet had remained private. And right now came public with this whole class of Uber and the right. Airbnb or whoever's going to come out in the next year or so. There's no way it would be trading at this price. No way. Mm. It's an I interesting mean, way to look at it. Yeah. I think that it would be significantly higher.
0: Well, thanks mm-hmm. for coming today. Thanks really for having appreciate me. appreciate it. Thanks nice again. to be with you. My thanks again to Karen Feinerman of both Metropolitan Capital and CNBC. As a reminder, again, like I said, this is a weekly podcast, but I do tweet my thoughts and ideas often in real time. The handle, if you want to follow me, is at Accord to Sources, A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O, Sources. If you want to email me, it's Michael at According to Sources, podcast.com. And lastly, feel free to leave any sort of review or rating. It helps me to continue to get great guests like Karen Feinerman on the show. Once again, this is Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital. This has been According to Sources for the week of November 25th, 2018, and I will see you next week.